Banyana Banyana, the South African national women's football team, are currently in New Zealand for the Women's World Cup. The competition represents a crossroads for them and their coach, Desiree Ellis. Will Ellis be able to help them fight their way out of the group? Or will they come back as one of the competition's early losers? Ellis is no loser, as her life story tells us. But are will, desire and endeavour quite enough? Welcome to The Luke Alfred Show. I have 30 years of experience on the front lines of sports journalism, covering some of the biggest games in cricket, rugby, the FIFA World Cup and even the Olympic Games. Come and join me as we learn about some of the greatest sports stories you've never heard. I'm Luke Alfred and welcome to the show. In 2014, the South African Football Association executive managed to put aside its customary differences there are 47 members on the SAFA executive, which makes it prone to customary differences, and appoint Vera Poe as the national women's football coach. The decision was all the more intriguing, not to mention brave and courageous, because Poe, from the Netherlands, was neither a local nor a stereotypical representative of Dutch football. When we think Dutch football, the orange images that swirl in our heads are of Johan Cruyff, Ruud Gullit and Dennis Bergkamp, rather than, say, Mark van Bommel or Ruud Kroll. In Poe's case, however, as a player she was closer to the latter than the former, an organised defender rather than a temperamental dreadlocked superstar with an eye for a goal. South Africans like to play Dutch, they like to attack, and they like to attack in ways that give full range to their capacity for trickery. Poe's appointment was clever, because she brought to Banyana Banyana elements they didn't naturally possess. She helped them to recognize undervalued attributes, set-piece organization, defensive order and concentration, and bind them to the national template. Poe made them a better side for it. Shortly after Poe started the Banyana Banyana job in 2014, she heard Desiree Ellis commentating on Supersport. Ellis's knowledge immediately impressed her. Poe could see Ellis understood the game and campaigned to appoint her as her coaching assistant. In another little victory for women's football, Ellis got the job, the two taking Banyana to the 2016 Rio Olympics. Of an identical age, both Poe and Ellis were born in 1963, the two of them got on well but for the occasional hit-and-miss moment when Poe's lapse into Dutch meant that no one understood her. Poe called Ellis her encyclopedia. While Poe was occasionally misunderstood, Ellis helped matters in the opposite direction. She helped Poe understand the players. She was a kind of cultural attaché. She helped Poe with an insider's knowledge of local football culture. For her part, Poe brought international best practice to the party, and an impressive playing pedigree that saw her play in Medina in Italy, one of the first women in the Netherlands to play elsewhere in Europe. In the course of interviewing Desiree for my authorised biography about her, it's called Magic and is on the bookshop shelves as we speak, she admitted with slight wistfulness that she would have been so much better as a player had Vera coached her. It wasn't to be. At least the two were able to harmonize later on in their international careers. Taking Banyana to Rio was a major achievement, 
but better than the major achievement was the more difficult to quantify achievement of instilling confidence and self-belief in a generation of players. Rio, in point of fact, was no carnival for Banyana. They didn't manage to clamber out of their group, but there was progress through 2014, 2015 and 2016. Banyana gained exposure, they became tighter, they became more disciplined, and the encyclopedia was always there to give Poe the correct reading when it came to an obscure entry tucked away in the dark reaches of J or S. Progress is never linear. It progresses well in fits and starts. Something happened in Rio that I haven't quite been able to get a handle on, and Desiree has been unusually coy. Whatever the truth of Banyana in Rio in 2016, Poe handed in her resignation soon afterwards. We might surmise that she felt institutional support from Safa for her team was lacking, but this is dangerous speculation. Perhaps she had been in South Africa long enough to understand the meaning of the word full. We don't know. And the people who do aren't saying. With Poe out of the picture, one might have thought that Safa would act quickly on making Ellis the new national woman's coach. Safa are nothing if not masters of the shilly-shally, however, a local dance that threatens tantalizingly to break into a fully-fledged decision only to withdraw into customary hand-wringing before long. It's a frustrating dance to shilly-shally, liable to have observers laughing when they aren't crying. Sometimes they do both at once. Just when Ellis thought she might be appointed full-time, so her period as, quote, acting national coach was extended. This kind of indecision can make people bitter, but if Ellis felt any rising bile, she didn't let it creep to the surface. She continued to do her job, and she continued to build on Poe's momentum. Eventually, in a kind of five minutes to midnight moment after nearly two years of being in an acting capacity, the music stopped and the shilly-shally stopped with it. Ellis was officially given Poe's job. Having placed Ellis squarely in Banyana's story, indeed having placed Ellis squarely in her own story, let's take a detour in the narrative at this point to tell you a little bit more about Ellis herself. We mentioned earlier that Poe and Ellis are of an age, but their background and growing up couldn't have been more different. It's only a slight exaggeration to say, for instance, that Ellis's lasting education at primary school was in street soccer. Ellis, her sisters and cousins, attended Dryden Street Primary School in Cape Town's Salt River in the 1970s, and when school and homework at their auntie Susan Ellis was over, they rushed for the rough and tumble of the street. Quote, We played in Kriev and Westminster streets, remembers Ellis. We challenged teams from Foundry Road and Portland Road, which is the road for Salt River Station. We used to buy T-shirts at Pep stores, so we could look nice and all the teams were different. It didn't matter if it was boys or girls. We played out there on the street for hours. Those matches were always fun. Enjoyable as it was, street soccer on Gria for Westminster streets was not without its perils. Ellis and her sisters and cousins played in their school shoes, often barter toughies, with the shoes being required to live up to their name in every conceivable way. Sometimes, though, 
their shoes were not quite tough enough. Street soccer was a hard school for school shoes. Footwear could become a problem. Toe punts from the feisty young Ellis never one to be intimidated by her cousins or the midfield heavies from the neighbouring streets, meant that the upper of the shoe often flapped away from the sole. Her and her sisters, Erna, Carmelita and Bettina, and Ellis's brother Basil, who is twelve years younger than she is, outgrew their school shoes rapidly, but woe betide if the hard knocks of street soccer aged those shoes prematurely. Quote, I remember my dad, Ernest, picking us up from Auntie Susan's house, says Ellis. He would take my shoes off my feet to protect them. Sometimes he saw the shoes' condition. He wasn't happy. Other than being fretful about the condition of his daughter's shoes, Ernest, a typewriter technician at Northern Office Equipment in Cape Town's CBD for 18 years, was a long-suffering and loving dad. Although Ellis wryly remembers Ernest, quote, kept trying for a boy, she also has fond memories of pilgrimages to Hartley Vale, the ground was still standing in those days, to watch the derby between Cape Town City and Hellenic. Quote, he wrapped his arms around me for protection when we went through the turnstiles, says Ellis, and he kept them wrapped around me on the terraces for the whole game. If there was only just enough money to go around when Ellis was growing up, love was never in short supply. Ernest married a local seamstress and dressmaker, Natalie September, in 1962, and the two set up house, first in Salt River, later in several houses in Hanover Park. An attempted burglary at their new home in one of the roughest sections of the suburb had the family scuttling for cover. They moved out immediately. Quote, whenever we heard a knock on the door in that place, we used to hide under the table, says Mother Natalie. Natalie has always been slight and fine-boned, and she jokes that when her and Ernest were courting, she used to catch the train for half-fare, although she was an adult. Quote, I used to take the train from Salt River to town to deliver Ernest's lunch, and everyone used to say that he was a cradle-snatcher, Natalie chuckles. Of the four Ellis daughters, it was Desiree and Carmelita who graduated with honours from the hard school of street soccer to the university that is the larger game. Both were talented midfielders, although Ellis started out as a bang-them-in striker. Quote, when they became aware we were sisters, everyone used to joke that I played like a boy and Carmelita played like a girl, says Desiree. Ellis made her league debut for Athlone Celtic aged 15. Before long, she was banging in the goals for the Western Province senior amateur side, contributing several goals, or so she thinks, to their victory in the final of the interprovincial tournament played at the Old Mutual Grounds in Pinelands in 1978. Quote, That was a good tournament for my dad, Desiree jokes, because people realized I was his daughter. Afterwards, he received quite a lot of job offers. Women's football in South Africa in the late 1970s and the early 1980s had neither the cachet nor the public interest that it does today. It was a ghetto sport, with little sponsorship and precious little interest from either the administrators or the public. Over time, the Ellis family virtually took over the running of Athlone Celtic, not because they wanted to, 
but because the task was so thankless that no one else wanted to do it, the club was always in one or another form of distress. Ernest used to transport the team to away matches in his much-abused panel van, and Natalie sewed everything from purses to fitted leather jackets for girls and young women to raise the cash for accommodation and transport, particularly if that year's interprovincial tournament was being played away from home. Quote, the Western Province Committee used to make fun of us, Natalie remembers. We didn't always bring notes after our selling was over. Sometimes we brought small change and poured out silver and coppers onto the table as well. The rhythm of practice-practice match was useful for Ellis in her teenage years because she had a dreamy side and was known to wander. Once, she was found on the platform of Salt River Station, holding the hands of a little boy, waiting to board a train. Her restlessness worried her parents. During this time, she also began to develop a social conscience, raiding Auntie Susan's larder and throwing foodstuffs over the fence to help the needy. Quote, it was just tins of food and rice, she says nonchalantly. I didn't want anyone walking past to go hungry. If Cape Town Spurs were the local club of choice, Manchester United was the family's adopted club further afield. The ups and downs of United season was monitored in the pages of the press, and Ellis knows her United stuff, her Alex Stepney from her Jimmy Greenhoff, her Norman Whiteside from her Ryan Giggs. Quote, I was inspired by Brian Robson, the kind of box-to-box -box midfielder I wanted to be when I changed from being a striker, says Ellis. So when I'd been at Celtic for a couple of years and was beginning to take more responsibility, his style and leadership became really important to me. He did the dirty work and wore his heart on his sleeve. I liked that. When her playing days were over, Ellis became fascinated by another Manchester United legend, Sir Alex Ferguson. The former gaffer's man-management skills and peerless ability to phase out ageing players without compromising a winning combination were lessons she took to heart. This, she agrees, is one of the most difficult decisions a coach ever has to make. She read Ferguson's book and tried to apply his mantras, particularly after having finally been given the banana job full-time by her employers, those lovers of the shilly-shally five years ago. It's been a good five years for Ellis and Banyana. They've steadily improved. They've snuggled their way into the nation's affections. Bar one or two unedifying kerfuffles, like their strike on the eve of their departure for their World Cup base in New Zealand a couple of weeks ago, their success is as strongly hoped for as is that of the national men's team. Their qualification for the 2023 World Cup was no flash in the poiki, because with Ellis in charge, they were one of three African qualifiers, the other two were Cameroon and Nigeria, for the World Cup in France in 2019, an eye-opener for the team. Faced with Spain, China and Germany, they didn't get out of their group, but led Spain until the 69th minute before conceding three goals in 20 minutes to the Spanish to finally go down 3-1. Neither were Banyana disgraced by their narrow 1-0 defeat by China, and, while their 4-0 loss to the Germans in the final group game didn't flatter them, 
they went home wiser in the ways of the football world. Quote, it didn't quite turn out the way we wanted in France, says Ellis, looking back. Our plan was to beat Spain, burgle a point against China, and scrap hard and see what we could come away with against Germany. It didn't go for us, but hey, that's life. We weren't disgraced, that's for sure. There's a tendency when looking back to confer a kind of retroactive unity on a period in history or, in our case here, a team. While the banana thrust post-po has generally been up, this isn't to say that there haven't been setbacks, diversions, and, although we should probably be wary of the term, horrors. Who, for example, would have backed Botswana, lowly and frail, to hold Banyana nil-nil after two legs in a continental qualifier for the Tokyo Olympics a couple of months after the 2019 World Cup in France. And that wasn't the end of it. The match ended with penalties, with Banyana on the wrong side of the result. So what exactly did this mean? It meant that Ellis's, the teams, the associations, and the country's best laid plans had to be put on hold. Banyana Banyana wouldn't be going to their second successive Olympics. The Botswana penalty debacle arrived not long before South Africa was plunged into hard COVID-19 lockdown. In March 2020, another nuisance for Ellis and Banyana. Lockdown meant that anxiety skyrocketed and, more mundanely, players became sick. The 2020 WAFCON, to give its full name, the Women's Africa Cup of Nations, was postponed as a result of the pandemic and, months later, Desiree herself became ill with COVID. For a couple of weeks she was ill and frightened, but like the fighter she is, she came through. Eventually, health and life returned to normal. Banyana Banyana qualified for WAFCON in early 2022, and when the draw was made for the Morocco-based tournament, the team found itself in a tricky group with old foes Nigeria and Botswana and Burundi making up the numbers. Adding to the tension during the tournament was the fact that the 2022 WAFCON in Morocco served a dual purpose. It doubled as the qualifying tournament for the following year's World Cup. In order to do that, however, you needed to reach the semi-finals. Could Banyana do that? The players felt that, yes, they could. Being drawn in the same group as Nigeria was of acute concern to Ellis. Indeed, Nigeria play a baleful role in the Ellis resume because their women have consistently beaten South Africa for nearly 30 years. It all began in 1995, with South Africa and Nigeria battling it out for one continental place for the Women's World Cup in Sweden later that year. It wasn't even close in the match, with Nigeria winning the two legs 11-2 on aggregate. Truth to tell, the poor South Africans didn't know what had hit them. One South Africa versus Nigeria match in particular stands for the whole. It happened in 2000, at Fosslurus Stadium and, that afternoon, South Africa reached the final of the Cup of Nations for the first time. Aged 37, and in the twilight of her international career, Desiree was playing that day. She would have dearly loved to have come away with a victory on home soil, but when Nigeria scored a second goal in the final, 
the local fans disputed the decision from the Senegalese referee and started throwing rocks, bottles and stones onto the pitch. A small group of Nigerian fans were set upon. Despite pleading from the South African players for calm, order was never restored. It wasn't far from the final whistle anyway, and the referee had no alternative but to award the title to Nigeria. At the time, Desiree thought that's just the way it was, as far as Nigeria were concerned. Losing to Nigeria was written in South Africa's football bones. Year after year, tournament after tournament, Banyana Banyana, as they now were, were beaten by the Nigerians. At the 2022 WAFCON, however, there were reasons for cautious Banyana optimism. Nigeria were no longer an unstoppable force. Their mantle was beginning to slip. A generation of players had retired to be replaced by players who didn't quite have the same swagger. Was it to be Banyana's day? The tournament schedule drew Ellis's Banyana and Nigeria against each other in the respective teams' opening matches, with Banyana's matches against Botswana and Burundi to follow. The days beforehand for Ellis and her support staff were filled with debates. They weren't sure of their best starting lineup, the best formation, the best approach. They knew that South Africa were capable of getting the better of Nigeria, but would it happen on the day? Theoretical confidence was one thing, actual confidence was quite another. At half-time against Nigeria in Rabat, it was nil all, but in a two-minute blitz 15 minutes in, Banyana scored twice, the first to Jermaine Siapasenwe, the second to Hilda Mahaya. Nigeria grabbed one back, but the South Africans showed composure in holding on to their lead to run out 2-1 winners. They had overcome the green and white bogeyman who had been hanging about their football ever since Desiree started playing for the national team in the mid-1990s. It was a special day in the growth of Desiree's team. Banyana brushed Burundi aside in match two and made it three out of three in taking revenge against Botswana for bumping them out of the Tokyo Olympics by beating them 1-0. For those who like a little drama with their news, it took Banyana until the 80th minute to open the scoring against Botswana. South Africa had all but qualified with their opening two victories, but leaving it so late wasn't good for the blood pressure. We all know the rest of the story, if only in patches. It started with a narrow quarterfinal win against Tunisia, a narrow semi-final win against Zambia, featuring a controversial penalty, and a narrow win of wins against Morocco in the final. Played in front of a hostile crowd in a strange country, the Morocco win was possibly the greatest performance in Banyana Banyana history. South Africa had been in the final before, Think of the Fosluris match in 2000 referenced earlier, but it never won the competition. Now they had. It was marvellous. The Babalas lasted for so long that Banyana and their management forgot exactly when it started. That was then. This is now. To be more precise, now is in wet and wintry New Zealand, in wet and wintry Wellington to be precise, where Banyana will not only have wet and wintry but strong wind to contend with. Drawn with Sweden, Argentina and Italy in their World Cup group, playing their preferred brand of carpet football in New Zealand conditions will be difficult. 
This needs to be contrasted with the fact that, throughout her life, Desiree Ellis has found a way. She was born prematurely. She was so small that she fitted into a shoebox. It didn't matter. She clung to life. Will she manage to find a way over the coming days? If you enjoyed this episode of The Luke Alfred Show, please like, share, follow and subscribe. I write full scripts for the show in the form of long-form essays and these are all available on my Substack. To get written episodes of The Luke Alfred Show a day early on Fridays, please check out The Luke Alfred Substack. You can hear The Luke Alfred Show on YouTube, Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I release a new episode every Saturday at 10.30 a.m. South African Standard Time.